0: This statue sent Florence abuzz. It was a wonderful symbol of the city, but it didn't belong to the people. It belonged to Cosimo de' Medici. In 1464, Florentine civic officials commissioned another David sculpture. But this one would be massive in scale and it would be prominently placed on Brunelleschi's Domo, right at the top. This David would belong to the people. A massive block of marble was provided at great expense from a quarry in nearby Carrera. Two different sculptors began working on this sculpture, but for reasons unknown, the project ceased and the block of marble remained neglected for 25 years, all the while exposed to the elements in the yard of the cathedral workshop. In the year 1500, an inventory of the cathedral workshops described this piece and it said, quote, it was a certain figure of marble called David, badly blocked out and supine, unquote. It was decided that an artist should be commissioned to finish the project. They raised the marble, which they called the giant. They set it up upright so that In 2018, a visitor to Florence was admiring Sandra Botticelli's The Birth of Venus at the world-renowned Uffizi Gallery. The visitor started to feel faint, became confused. Their heartbeat was elevated until they fell victim to a heart attack. When alerted, the Uffizi staff gave each other knowing nods, and then they rushed to assist. They'd seen this before. Another victim of Stendhal syndrome. What? What? is this. Well, in 1817, French author Marie-Henri Bailey, better known by his pen name of Stendhal, visited many of the artistic sites in Florence. This experience caused him to be overcome with profound emotion. Stendhal wrote, I was in a sort of ecstasy, absorbed in the contemplation of sublime beauty. I reached the point where one encounters celestial sensations Everything spoke so vividly to my soul. I had palpitations of the heart. Life was drained from me. I walked with the fear of falling. Thus, Stendhal syndrome was born. It is also known as Florence syndrome. It's described as a psychosomatic condition involving a rapid heartbeat, fainting, confusion, and even hallucinations. And this allegedly occurs when individuals become exposed to objects, artworks, or phenomena of great beauty and antiquity. There are numerous accounts of people fainting while taking in Florentine art, dating from early in the 19th century. One Italian psychiatrist observed such cases over a hundred times amongst tourists in Florence. Is it possible that a city can be so beautiful that it can make you sick? Hello and welcome to Snapshots from Europe Travelogue. I am your host, Brian Unger providing the historical, cultural, and geographical backstories for some of the greatest destinations in Europe to help you get a fuller appreciation for these places when you visit. We're nearing the end of season two of Snapshots from Europe Travelog. We've crisscrossed the continent, sampling the highlights from numerous awesome destinations. Now you can debate which European cities are best for culture, for cuisine, for activities, or for nightlife. However, there is no debate about which city is the best in Europe and really the best in the world for art. That city is Florence, the cradle of the Renaissance. This is where the embers of Europe's classical heritage burst into flames. There are so many sites and so many tourists in Florence, at times it feels like a Renaissance theme park. But my goodness, this is a beautiful and an elegant city. I would put it on a short list of European cities that you absolutely must visit. It was Florence that led Europe out of the Middle Ages and into the humanistic modern world making an indelible stamp on Western civilization. So let's start by figuring out what the Renaissance is all about and from there we'll explore some of the incandescent Florentine treasures in architecture, sculpture and painting. We'll conclude by summarizing 10 ways you can experience all this city has to offer and why it is so beautiful and how it can actually make you sick. We'll start in a small town just outside of Florence where Francesco Petrarch was born in the year 1304. He went on to become a scholar and a poet but I think we'd really like this guy because he loved to travel. Back then, the only people who really traveled were religious pilgrims and ambassadors. But Petrarch was different because he traveled for pleasure. He has in fact been called the world's first tourist. And being the scholar that he was, along the way, he collected crumbling Latin manuscripts on his travels and he brought them back to Florence. This gave new life to the Greek and Roman worldview. It was apparent that there were profound differences between commonly held attitudes and philosophies of the classical world and that of the late medieval world that Petrarch inhabited. The Roman Catholic Church dominated the medieval world as the most important entity on earth. Man is sinful and life on earth was not as important as the afterlife. The Greek and Roman manuscripts that Petrarch had uncovered were from a pre-Christian time where mankind was celebrated. Life on earth was important, and it was not a sin to enjoy oneself. The church was not the most important entity on earth. It was the individual. The common theme in all of this was the accent on humans. What a breath of fresh air it became a bit of a craze to comb through monasteries all over Europe in search of more Greek and Latin writings. It's almost as if the classical world was being reborn. Well, we've got to find a word for this. Well, the French word for rebirth is Renaissance. And Petrarch from Tuscany, the world's first tourist, is often called the father of the Renaissance. So how was it that Florence became ground zero for the European Renaissance and the cradle for an artistic explosion that would literally change the Western world? Well, it all started with the three laws of real estate that most people are acquainted with, location, location, location. In the 15th century, international trade was really taking off, and Florence was perfectly situated to capitalize on this. With navigable water on three sides, it was a convergence of the best of all worlds, a melting pot that brought together a wealth of goods and ideas. It really started with the Crusades, which built trading links with the Levant. Luxury goods such as spices, dyes, and silks were imported to Italy and then resold throughout Europe. Gold was brought in from Northern Africa. Silk and spices came from Constantinople and points further east, Raw wool and cloth came in from Northern Europe, and Florence was at the hub of all of this trade. Add to that the vast wealth created by a killer textile industry, and you've got a city that is sitting on a mountain of money. All of this commerce created a need for innovative banking and business practices. Systems of credit and insurance were developed against loss or damage to ships on voyages. And because Italians are all about family, they tended to limit partnerships to their kin, which led to the rise of uber-wealthy banking families. This created a new social class, which upset the medieval European social structure that had been entrenched for centuries. Traditionally, you had clergy, land and nobility, and laborers. But these emergent nouveau riche families were part of what amounted to a new worldview, a new ideology. Power, influence, and status was attained not through birth, but by merit and by wealth. This was totally consistent with the values that were held by the Greeks and the Romans, an ideology that placed the accent on humans and it celebrated the individual. It was their human achievement that gave them status and social rank, not their birth. They may not have the cachet, the old school respectability of traditional medieval European nobility, But the Renaissance would give them an opportunity to legitimize themselves and prove themselves worthy of their new status. The unquestioned leading family in Florence was the Medici. The patriarch of the family was Cosimo de' Medici, who started the Medici Bank, which became the largest in all of Europe. Cosimo became a tremendous patron of the arts and he set the standard for other wealthy families in Florence. They all sought to outdo each other in an attempt to display and justify their power. It's estimated that Cosimo de' Medici spent the equivalent of 460 million US dollars on charity and the arts. Other nouveau riche families competed with the Medici and they competed with each other and soon Florence was dripping with spectacular architecture and art both public and private the entire city became and continues to be like an open-air museum with a distinct classical greco-roman theme so let's see how this new renaissance worldview shaped florence we'll start with architecture at the time Florence had its share of cathedrals, but in the 14th century, the most impressive structure in the city was the St. John's Baptistry. It had an interior that was and is decorated with spectacular mosaics. In 1401, it was decided that they should redo the two bronze doors to the baptistry, and that would serve as kind of an offering to celebrate the sparing of Florence from the Black Death in 1348. Many artists competed for this prestigious commission. Two artists emerged from the pack with superior designs. They were Filippo Brunelleschi and Lorenzo Ghiberti. The judges couldn't decide between the two of them, so they were both assigned to work on the doors together. Well, Brunelleschi's pride got in the way, and he had no intention of sharing the commission, so he left the project altogether, leaving Ghiberti to work on the doors by himself. It took Ghiberti 21 years to complete the project. These gilded bronze doors consist of 28 panels, mostly depicting the life of Christ from the New Testament. They are described by art historians as the most important event in the history of Florentine art in the first quarter of the 15th century. Michelangelo himself saw these doors, and when he saw them, he exclaimed, surely, These must be the gates to paradise. These doors will undoubtedly be on any walking tour you will do in Florence. So what of Brunelleschi? Well, he decided to go to Rome with a friend of his by the name of Donatello. And their plan was to study classical Roman architecture. They combed the city, studying every bit of classical architecture they could find, measuring and sketching all of it. There was no sort of building that they did not sketch. Round, square, octagonal, temples, basilicas, aqueducts, baths, arches, coliseums, amphitheaters. But the building that entranced Brunelleschi the most was one that has entranced me as well. I highlighted this building in my Rome podcast earlier this season when I called it my favorite building in the world. It is the spectacular pantheon. Which is crowned by a perfectly symmetrical, big, beautiful dome. Brunelleschi was particularly interested in dome vaulting. Why might you ask? See, Brunelleschi thought that the baptistry door project was all well and good, but across the street from the baptistry was a far more epic project. That is where a church had stood for centuries, but it was crumbling, and a magnificent new cathedral was commissioned it would be the cathedral di santa maria del fiore almost from the beginning florentines envisioned a huge dome atop this cathedral and this would be the envy of all of italy and it would bring the city the respect and admiration that it sought in 1365 well before the dome was or the uh, cathedral was finished an artist painted a picture of what the completed dome would look like and again that's all well and good but nobody actually knew how to build a dome. In a remarkable, astonishing demonstration of faith, preparations for the dome continued as builders built the base. It was completed in the year 1413. There's a 140 foot wide opening, but no sign of the dome and no one knew how to build it. They called in all Italian and non-Italian architects to submit proposals. Most felt it couldn't be done. Year after year went by, until in 1418, the Florentine City Council announced a call for proposals on how to finish it. Brunelleschi was way ahead of the game. He had already secretly executed models and mechanisms to work on the Santa Maria del Fiore Dome. By 1420, architects from all over Europe assembled in Florence to submit their proposals. Some proposed brick pillars to hold the dome up. Some wanted to make the dome out of pumice, which would make it lighter. And many others thought that maybe a single pillar in the center was the only way to go, or some kind of a pavilion shape, kind of like the roof that was over the baptistry. Brunelleschi alone declared that the dome could be built that large with no supports. Problem was, he had constructed a model, but he didn't want to show anyone this model for fear that they would steal his idea. Consequently, Most people thought he was a madman. Then he did something very clever. He pulled the trustees aside one by one, and he individually explained his model to them. The committee remained quite skeptical, but they were desperate. So with great reservations, Brunelleschi was awarded the commission. What was his secret? Well, he applied a few tricks that he had learned from his studies of the Pantheon and other classical Roman architecture but the two keys are this. First was a double shell, a dome within a dome with a series of vertical ribs supporting the structure. To prevent the dome from collapsing under its own weight, a series of stone and iron chains, which are still in place today, would be embedded into the inner dome to provide support and stability. The second trick was a herringbone brick pattern, which would transfer the weight of the newly laid bricks to the vertical ribs and then down to the cathedral's base. Work on the dome began in 1420 and it continued at a furious pace. As the structure grew higher, it became disruptive for workers to ascend and descend for lunch, so kitchens were installed and wine was sold up in the top parts of the dome, allowing workers to stay up there all day long. 16 years later, the dome was completed in 1436 amidst great celebration with the Pope himself in attendance. It was by far the largest dome in the world, and with more than four million bricks, it remains the largest masonry dome in the world today. This dome, which is now just called the Duomo, is one of the most influential buildings that has ever been built and would influence church and public buildings right up until the present day. You'll be awed by this dome when you visit it, but don't just look at it, you should climb it. But the climb isn't for everyone. It has 463 small and narrow steps that were originally built to to help the workers during the construction and for the maintenance, it wasn't built for tourists. But you'll get to see the architectural magnificence up close, including a great look at the herringbone brick pattern. And of course the view from the top is awesome. If small spaces and the heights aren't for you, visit the Grand Museo del Duomo. It's a museum that's out in behind the Duomo, and it gives an outstanding overview of the construction of this cathedral with all kinds of fascinating curiosities, including Brunelleschi's death mask. We have knocked off two of the biggies in architecture, the baptistry doors, and the Duomo but from an artistic standpoint, the Italian Renaissance really gets started with sculpture. Not surprisingly, Cosimo de' Medici is a part of this mix. The city of Florence had kind of adopted the biblical figure of David as something of a mascot. He symbolized the liberty and freedom of their Republican ideals, and he was an allegory for Florentine civic virtues, triumphing over brutality and irrationality. Like David, Florentines saw themselves as God-blessed underdogs fighting their city-state rivals. This called for a special statue, which Cosimo planned to make the focal point in the courtyard of his Palazzo Medici. At this point in the early Renaissance, many artists were allowing classical influences to creep into their work. Although the themes were still mostly religious, Jesus, Mary, and the saints were starting to appear less aloof with hints of human emotions such as sorrow, tenderness, and suffering. But all statues were fully clothed, and for the most part, they were quite static and lacking in energy. This sculpture would need to be special, and Cosimo de' Medici knew the man for the job. Remember Brunelleschi's road trip buddy, Donatello, the artist with whom he toured classical Rome? Like Brunelleschi, Donatello also picked up a few ideas on this trip. You may have noticed that many sculptures from the classical period are clothing optional. Donatello thought it was time to shatter the conventions of the contemporary art world at the time and make a splash, and the result was jaw-dropping. After a few years of work, he unveiled his bronze David sometime in the mid-1440s. It was a stunning, freestanding nude, the first since ancient times. Europe hadn't seen this kind of thing for 1,000 years. And it wasn't only the nudity that broke barriers. Donatello put the statue into a contrapposto pose with its weight on one foot. This was unlike other statues, which, which they look static. But Donatello's David was realistic. It was energetic. It was natural. The overall impact of the statue is almost breathtaking. It has been called painfully beautiful. Nothing would be the same after Donatello's David. It is widely regarded as the first major sculpture of the Renaissance, and it literally changed the art form forever. It is the centerpiece at the Bargello Museum in Florence, and it is something you should not miss when you visit. The statue set Florence abuzz, a wonderful symbol of the city, but it didn't belong to the people. It belonged to Cosimo de' Medici. So in 1464, Florentine civic officials commissioned another David sculpture. This one would be massive in scale, and the idea was to have it prominently placed on top of Brunelleschi's Domo. This David would belong to the people. A massive block of marble was provided at great expense from a quarry in nearby Carrara. Two different sculptures began working on this, but for reasons unknown, the project ceased and the block of marble remained neglected for 25 years, exposed to the elements in the yard of a cathedral workshop. In 1500, an inventory of cathedral workshops was being done and this piece was found where it was described as a certain figure of marble called David, badly blocked out and supine. It was decided that an artist should be commissioned to finish this project. This huge block of marble was dubbed the giant. They set the giant upright so that a master experienced in this kind of work might examine it and express an opinion. A 26-year-old Florentine artist Who had already been making a name for himself as a sculptor, examined the marble. His name was Michelangelo. He had already produced some magnificent sculptures, most notably the Pieta, which is on display in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and Bacchus, which is in Florence's Bargello Museum, along with Donatello's David. As a proud Florentine, Michelangelo was eager to win this commission. But when he looked at the 17 foot tall giant block of stone, he didn't see a block of stone. He saw the fully formed David within the stone and this David needed liberation. He won the commission and he threw himself into the project. He convinced priests to allow him into the morgues and in the basements of Florentine cathedrals so he could dissect cadavers in order to get a better understanding of human anatomy which would help him on this project. Along with celebrating Florence and the values that David represented, this sculpture was also to celebrate the human body. And David is displayed in all of his nude glory in the tradition of the statues from the classical age. And the result is astonishing. Initially, it was thought that the statue would be raised at the top of the cathedral and that unfortunately wasn't going to happen because the david weighed more than six tons so it was finally decided that david should be guarding the entrance to the town hall or palazzo vecchio michelangelo's workshop was only a half a mile from the palazzo vecchio but it took four whole days to move the statue that far and there david stood naked and outdoors for 350 years finally in 1873, the statue was moved indoors to preserve the masterpiece. Today, David resides at the Academia under a Renaissance-style dome designed just for him. Obviously seeing David, the symbol of Florence is a huge highlight for any visitor. It is probably the most famous statue ever created and viewing it is actually quite a moving experience. However, if for some reason you don't have enough time to fit in a visit to the Academia when you're in Florence, there is a replica of David standing in its original location outside the Palazzo Vecchio in the main square. It's awesome to see the replica, but for some reason, there's really nothing like seeing the real thing. We've talked about Florentine architecture and sculpture, but we haven't even started on Renaissance painting. It will not surprise you to know that Florence has the greatest collection of Renaissance artwork anywhere in the world, and much of that is housed in the Uffizi Gallery. This collection boggles the mind and you could spend days there, but that would be a bit much for most people, so maybe allot yourself at least two hours to do the place some form of justice. A good idea is to invest in the audio guide. It costs you six euros and it takes you on about an hour and a half tour through the gallery. Along the way, you'll see works from Michelangelo, Leonardo, Raphael, Titian, and Caravaggio, many others. It's a full court press. But let me highlight a painting that has what I believe is the purest expression of Renaissance beauty. And for that, we need a backstory. Sandro Botticelli was a very prolific painter from the early Renaissance period. He had numerous religious works to his name. In fact, he was so well regarded for his religious art that he was summoned by the Pope to fresco the walls, not the ceiling, but the walls of the Sistine Chapel. But it's not those paintings that have made Botticelli immortal. Botticelli had studied Plato's philosophy at the Florentine Platonic Academy and that's where his friends and teachers were some of the most important humanists of the day. He became fascinated with classical mythology. Botticelli went on to become a patron of Lorenzo the Magnificent. This is the grandson of Cosimo de' Medici, and he spent a lot of time hanging out in the Medici courtyard. That is where he fell in love with a sculpture that adorned Lorenzo's garden. It was the Venus de' Medici. This is a first century BCE copy of a Greek original sculpture by the great Greek sculptor Praxiteles. It has been called the epitome of beauty and sexuality. As it turned out, Botticelli knew a woman who at the time he thought was the epitome of beauty and sexuality. Her name was Simonetti Vespucci. She was the cousin-in-law of Americo Vespucci, That's the guy who America was named after. Simonetti Vespucci was known as the greatest beauty of her age in the entire country of Italy. Botticelli was entranced and he fell in love. Problem was Simonetti was already married. So by all accounts, this was an unrequited love. However, she agreed to model for Botticelli and she became the face of several of his paintings. This all created the perfect storm when Lorenzo the Magnificent commissioned Botticelli to paint a classic scene from Greek mythology, The Birth of Venus. This is the painting that caused that poor tourist to have that heart attack in 2018. Botticelli basically put the Venus de' Medici statue on canvas and gave her the face of Simonetta Vespucci. What resulted was one of the greatest, most important, and symbolic masterpieces of the Renaissance. This is one of the world's most famous and most appreciated works of art. It was revolutionary for a number of reasons. During the early Renaissance, painting on wood panels was all the rage. But The Birth of Venus was the first work on canvas in Tuscany. And at roughly six feet by nine feet, it was huge. And to mix his paints, Botticelli used an expensive alabaster powder, making the colors even brighter and more timeless. But it was the theme that rocked the Renaissance world. This painting is dripping with meaning and allegorical references to antiquity. Venus, the goddess of love, stands naked on a seashell, being blown to shore by Zephyr, god of the wind. Another pagan goddess is ready with a cape to clothe the newborn deity. The flowers that are being sprinkled in the background were often used for love potions. And this being a birthing scene, the shell she stands on is thought to represent female genitalia. And the nudity. With Christian art dominating the Middle Ages, you never saw nakedness. And here you see a pagan theme with a boldly full frontal female nude front and center. This painting could have drawn a charge of paganism and infidelity, but it was under the protection of the powerful Medici family, so it got a pass. Instead, it signaled a brave new world in art, and with the birth of Venus, we now had a new standard and a lasting symbol for feminine grace and beauty. But believe it or not, Botticelli's masterpiece was almost lost to the world. In later life, the artist became one of the many followers of the deeply moralistic and fundamentalist friar, Savonarola. He preached in Florence in the 1490s and he preached against these vanities and he promoted something that you may have heard of before called the bonfire of the vanities. This took place in 1497 and it's widely believed that Botticelli burned many of his own paintings with classical themes. Fortunately, he did not get his hands on the birth of Venus. And what of Botticelli's muse, Simonetta Vespucci, the most beautiful woman in Italy, and the face of Venus in his famous painting. She tragically died in 1476 at the tender age of 22. She was buried in her family crypt at the church of Ognissanti in Florence. Botticelli, he never married and he never got over Simonetta Vespucci. He even asked to be buried with her Botticelli died in 1510, and as per his request, today you can find him lying eternally at the feet of his earthly inspiration. For each episode of Snapshots from Europe Travelog, I've made a habit of highlighting 10 things to see or do at our European destinations. Now, don't get me wrong. Each of the places we visited in each episode are great in their own way, but I'll be honest, sometimes it's a bit of a stretch coming up with 10 specific things to see and do. This is not a problem in Florence. I recently spent a full week in the city and I found that I needed all seven days to take in its many delights. So let's summarize what we've covered in this episode and where you can see some of the sublime beauty that has caused fainting, confusion, hallucinations, and even heart attacks described by Stendhal, so we'll narrow it down to 10. Start with the Uffizi Gallery. This is the greatest collection of Italian painting anywhere in the world. It's home to Botticelli's Birth of Venus and many other amazing masterpieces. Your other A-plus museum in Florence is the Academia, that's home to Michelangelo's David and a few of his other works. For both museums, you really need to reserve well in advance, they're very popular. Now as great as the Uffizi and the Academia are, I could almost say that I prefer the Bargello Museum to those other two. It's housed in a former prison, and that gives this museum a very cool vibe. It's nowhere near as busy as the other two museums, and this has some amazing pieces. Michelangelo's Bacchus is one of my favorites. You'll also find the original panels that Ghiberti and Brunelleschi entered into the competition for the baptistry doors. And of course, the statue that changed the Renaissance. Donatello's David is the centerpiece. Do not miss the Bargello Museum. Ghiberti's baptistry doors are easy to see, and best of all, they're free. Maybe you'll agree with Michelangelo who said, surely these must be the gates to paradise. And it's definitely worth a trip inside the baptistry to see the spectacular 13th century gold mosaic ceiling. Climbing to the top of Brunelleschi's Domo is one of my favorite things to do in Florence. You'll walk the same stairs as the workers who erected the dome in the 15th century. You'll marvel at the architecture, and I'm sure I don't have to tell you that the view from the top is one of the finest views in all of Europe. The Domo Museum is a lot more interesting than I thought it might be. You'll learn the amazing story of how it was constructed, and as an added bonus, you'll even see Brunelleschi's death mask. Now, if you can't get tickets to climb the Domo, it is never a problem to ascend the tower at Palazzo Vecchio, or the town hall. You'll be overlooking the Piazza della Signoria. And that's where the David replica stands. And although you won't ascend quite as high as you would when you're climbing the the, the Domo, a huge bonus is you'll get a view of the Domo, which is towering over the red roofs of Florence. As impressive as the Domo is, it really isn't the most important church in Florence. That honor goes to the Santa Croce Church. This is covered in 14th century frescoes by Giotto who is considered the father of Renaissance painting. But even more significant are the many tombs of famous Florentines. The impressive tomb of Michelangelo is in Santa Croce. Niccolo Machiavelli rests there. He's the author of The Prince, which is undoubtedly the most famous handbook for rulers ever written. He is often called the father of modern political philosophy and of political science. Speaking of fathers, you could also visit Galileo, who has been called the father of modern science. I'll tell you, there must have been something in the water of Florence to produce this cluster of geniuses. Galileo has an entire museum dedicated to him as well, and that is worth a visit in Florence. I loved it, especially as a change of of pace from the avalanche of art that overwhelms you in Florence. You'll see fascinating old clocks, telescopes, maps, and as an added bonus, you get to see three of Galileo's fingers, which are on display. Finally, the tenth attraction, if you're keeping track, that I'd recommend is the Pitti Palace. This is a lavish palace and gardens that was the residence of a Florentine banker by the name of Luca Pitti, dating way back to 1458, but it was later bought by the Medici family in the mid-1500s. It grew as a great treasure house as later generations amassed paintings, plates, jewelry, and luxurious possessions. In the late 18th century, the palazzo was used as a power base by Napoleon and later served as the principal royal residence of the newly united country of Italy. Today, you can see the lavish palace and a gallery with numerous paintings by Raphael, Titian, Caravaggio, and others. There are several museums for costume and fashion, a museum of porcelains, and a sprawling Boboli and Bardini gardens. If this were any other city, the Pitti Palace would be an A-plus number one attraction but it gets lost in the shuffle amongst the other magnificent museums in Florence. As a result this is easily overlooked, so if you have time, check it out. So there we have it. Ten attractions in Florence and I have left many others out. I haven't even mentioned that the city has some of the best gelato in Italy. That is reason enough to go to Florence. Above all, when you go to Florence, Take precautions to avoid Stendhal syndrome. Stay hydrated, pace yourself, and maybe pause between taking in the miraculous masterpieces that litter the city. If you have any appreciation for art and beauty, there is no place on earth like Florence. But remember to stay safe. I will post some pictures of these masterpieces on my Instagram Snapshots Travelogue so you can get an idea of what you are in for when you visit this fantastic city. And as always, remember to keep calm and travel on.